So we're, we're sort of continuing really in our Growing in Love series. And uh, we've kind of talked about growing in love for one another. Um, we've talked about growing in love for God's word. And today we're going to talk about growing in love for the lost or growing in love for the world around us. Um, I'd just like to start with God really this morning. Um, if we think about who God is, there should be a quote above me, hopefully. Um, and, and we know that God himself, he is a community of love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they, they dwell together in this perfect community um, of love. Um, and Tim Keller has this great quote. He says that they, they know one another, they defer to one another, and they've got infinite joy, glory, and peace. Um, but the thing about God is, although he, he, is, he is his perfect community. He doesn't need anyone or anything else. Um, he doesn't need us to love him. But out of the abundance of who he is, out of the overflow of his love, that love overspills to the whole world. And it says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, and it's kind of, in a sense, the church mirrors God himself. The community that we have as a church, it's as we love one another that then the love of God is going to overflow, it overspills into the world around us. And in fact, <clears throat> our love for one another um, is a witness to the world. Um, Jesus says, by this um, you will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. But the question arises um, how do we demonstrate that love to the world around us? I don't know whether you're aware, but in the Christian church, in the professing church, um, there are lots of kind of extreme uh, ways in which people deal with the lost. So, for example, um, somewhere um, in the States, I believe, their idea of how they deal with the lost is um, they go on like angry street marches and they wave banners, provocative banners that say, you know, God hates so-and-so, you're going to burn in hell. Um, and you have to think, is that, really the right, is that really the right way that we should be towards the lost? But on the other hand, um, you've got um, churches and people who say, um, you know, God loves everyone, um, you're fine with God, there is no judgment, um, there, is, there is, you know, no, no punishment to come. Um, God accepts all, even if they don't acknowledge anything for their sin. So you've kind of got these two extremes in the church as to how do we deal with the lost and what's God's heart. And, and as I was praying for this and as I was preparing, I believe that, that, that God was saying um, he wants us as a church and as individuals to glimpse his heart. God wants, us to, God wants us to have his heart, the heart of God this morning. And I believe that God directed me to this passage. It probably seems like a bit of an obscure one in some ways, but he directed me to this passage in Ezekiel, and it's chapter 18. So we're just going to read together um, Ezekiel and uh, chapter 18. So uh, do follow me in your Bibles if you'd like to. Um, whilst we're on the subject of Bibles, we do have about three that have been left behind over the past few weeks. So, so there is... Very nice red one here and another couple here, so um, there's loads of Bibles there. Okay, so Ezekiel chapter 18. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb, 
concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his, his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. And we'll just skip on to verse 21. And it says, But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them he shall die. We'll just uh, skip on to verse 28. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he has committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not fair, O house of Israel. Is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn and live." So, just a bit of background. It does seem a bit of an odd passage, I know, but there. Um, that is what I believe the Lord wanted me to speak on. We remember that, as a bit of background, Ezekiel um, was a prophet, and um, he had been called to speak the word of God to the exiles in Babylon. Um, you remember that in Judah, there was this succession of wicked kings, wicked and idolatrous kings, and it kind of culminated in the reign of Jehoiakim. He was the last bad king in Judah. And as a response to that, um, God, um, basically, he pours judgment on the people. And Jerusalem is burned to the ground, it's ransacked, um, the royalty and the nobility are imprisoned. Um, and then Ezekiel really is left with the, the job of, um, of proclaiming God's word to the captives who are left in, Ezek in um, Babylon. Um, so he's left with that job. And he spends a lot of his time kind of scathingly rebuking the, um, the, the, uh, 
the, the captives there. So for example, in, in chapter 2 and verse 4, he says that they're impudent and stubborn children. In 5 and verse 6, he says they are even more wicked than the surrounding nations. In 5 and verse 11, he says that they've defiled God's temple with detestable things. And in 5 verse 16, he says that they've committed harlotry with the surrounding nations, the Egyptians and the Assyrians. And in 16 and verse 20, he says that they've sacrificed their sons to the idols, causing them to pass through the fire. So really, these poor, well, (laughs) not these poor people, but really Ezekiel hasn't got a good word to say about them. They're a very wicked people. Um, They have engrossed themselves in gross, terrible wickedness. And and Ezekiel is really giving a, a, a message of warning. And he's saying to them, God's judgment is hanging over you. Um... If we look at chapter 5, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you've multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are around you, haven't walked in my statutes nor kept my judgments, therefore I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgment in your midst in the sight of the nations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. One third of you shall die because of the pestilences and be consumed with famine in the midst. So shall it be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to all the nations that are around you when I execute judgment in anger, in fury, and in furious rebukes. So it's very sobering, very, very sobering what Ezekiel is saying here. Very sobering. But chapter 18, it's a pivotal one. It's a very important chapter that we grasp. Very important, because in it we grasp the heart of God. We grasp how he wants us to um, react towards the lost. Um, And so we learn some very important lessons about the intentions of his heart towards the lost. So the first thing that we learn, this is my first point really, demonstrating the love of God towards the lost, it means that we are not afraid to speak the truth about personal responsibility for sin. If we look in verse 2, this proverb had basically come up among the, um, among the Jewish people. And they said, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the t- children's teeth are set on edge. Basically, what they were saying is, You're blaming us, God, for what our parents have done. Our fathers have eaten sour grapes, and you've set our teeth on edge. Now, to be fair to them, there are some things in the Bible that kind of do indicate that maybe that's the case. If we think of um, uh, Exodus, when God's giving the Ten Commandments, um, in uh, chapter 20, it's obviously Exodus 20, isn't it? But he basically says that the iniquity of the fathers is visited on the children to the third and fourth generations. So basically what these Jews are doing is they are misapplying that scripture and they're saying, you're punishing us on behalf of our fathers. You're not punishing us for what, um, you know, for what we've done, you know, you're, you're punishing us for them. There is a reality, I think, that we have to bear in mind, that, um, that actually our circumstances and our backgrounds and the generations that we come from, iniquity can be visited down the generations. And that happens in, in simple ways. So, for example... I'm guessing if, you spend all, if your parents spent all their money on drugs, for example, and, um, you know, and you don't have any more finances left in the bank, that's going to have a bad effect on you. So that iniquity is, vin- is visited down the generations. Maybe you pick up sinful patterns of behaviour from your parents. 
That's the iniquity being visited down the generations. But what's really clear here is that um, these Jewish people, what they're really doing is they're casting aspersions on the character of God. And they're saying, you're wrong for blaming us because of what our parents have done. But do you know what God, God says? This is a case of blame shifting. And humanity, ever since the Garden of Eden, humanity has wanted to shift the blame off themselves. We all do it. I do it all the time. I don't like taking... I don't, don't blame me for anything. Um, um, and you remember what happens. You remember that Adam, Adam blames Eve, doesn't he? And he says, the woman... Actually, in fact, he kind of blames God, really. He says, the woman that you gave me, God, um, you know, she gave of me of the tree and I ate. So Adam kind of blames God. And then Eve... When, when kind of the firing line turns on to her, she says, well, um, you know, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It was really the snake's fault. Um, so there's this, there's this inherent tendency to blame shift. And I think one of the things that is very difficult in our society is we want to have a balanced approach. We accept that our, our backgrounds do affect us in some ways. And, and they can be painful things. They can be devastating things. I see a lot of people as a GP and their lives have have been wrecked by very difficult experiences, and I don't want to belittle that. But there is a reality that when it comes to spiritual things and our responsibility before God, that we bear that responsibility as individuals. So we have a very, what you might say, a hyper-therapeutic culture where everything is somebody else's fault, and we have to think, why did, they, why did this person do this? Why did they do that? Um, but God says, it says really clearly, doesn't it? Um, the soul who sins shall die. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father. So we get this idea of God is a sovereign judge and he holds every person accountable um, for their sin. Um, and really it goes on to talk about that a bit further throughout um, chapter 18. So verses 4 to 9 really talks about a just man being judged according to his righteousness. Verses 10 to 13 speak about the wicked son of a just man and he's still bearing the responsibility for his sin. And verses 14 to 17 describe the just son of a wicked man being accounted as righteous on the basis of his own righteousness. So, so what I'm trying to say really is that when we evangelise, when we're demonstrating God's love to people, we must have this element of personal responsibility for sin. Because actually if we don't, our message doesn't make any sense. Because people start to say on the streets, oh, you know, what's this gospel, what's this Jesus, why did he come? If we, do, if we leave out sin the whole thing collapses and it doesn't make any sense. And sometimes we see that in the Christian world. We see it's just kind of a, um, it's just kind of a, maybe a feel-good message, God loves us, which he does. And later on, I really want to talk about the love of God because that's amazing. But there is a reality that we are saved from something and we are saved from our sin. So that's really the, um, that's really the, 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 the first, the first um, the verse point. Um, just talking a little bit more about that, John often says this, and I really... I really agree. I think John's really spot on when he says this. He says that we are, we're, we're, we're perpetrators as well as victims of sin. So we are victims of sin. We, we are affected by other people's sin, but we are also perpetrators. And it's kind of both that we need saving from, actually. But we do need to recognise our own responsibility. just want to quickly look through the passage again. So if we look at verse 6, it has a very broad list of sins in Ezekiel, doesn't it? It says, in this passage, it says that they haven't eaten on the mountains nor lifted up their eyes to the idols. Um, so the first thing in verse 6 there, it's talking about idolatry. It's saying that the Israelites have been involved in idolatry. We don't have idolatry, well, we do in some parts of the world, um, and even in this country increasingly. 
But we do have idolatry in subtle forms, don't we? Maybe it's our jobs or our careers or something else. We're all um, involved with idolatry. Verse 6 talks about um, kind of adultery and sexual sin. It talks about, you know, they haven't um, defiled their neighbor's wife nor approached a woman during her impurity. So there's that broad category of of sexual sins and personal misconduct. In verse 7, it says if he hasn't oppressed anyone, but he's restored to the debtor his pledge and hasn't robbed anyone by violence, but given his bread to the hungry. That's an interesting one. It's kind of almost like that there's a category of social justice type sins as well there. So it's a very broad list of sins, incorporating all of these different um, areas. And notice it includes sins not just of um, what people have done, but it's their failure to pursue the good. So we're accountable to God, not only because of our sins of commission, but also of omission. And so it's a bit of a depressing list, isn't it? By the time you get to the end of it, you get to this kind of crushing realisation that all of us are guilty. All of us are guilty. And none of us have attained God's standards. And uh, that first, um, the first slide, I think, uh, or second slide, um, really is, is what Paul is talking about. He says that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Charles Spurgeon, I don't know whether you've heard of him, he was a great preacher in the 19th century, and he said this, he said, lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain, for it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and conversion. So we need that. That's an indispensable part of our message. And the law, what it does is it leads us to Christ. It says in Galatians that the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. So we realize this crushing weight that we haven't reached God's standards and we communicate that with others. But then we realize that the law brings us to Jesus, doesn't it? So, so it's absolutely indispensable. This is the second point, just moving on quickly. There's only three. <laughs> um, this is the second point. Um, demonstrating the love of God towards the lost. It means that we warn them of the consequences of their sin. We warn them of the consequences of their sin. So not only are they responsible, but they, they are also, there are also consequences for that sin as well. So verse 4 is pretty blunt, isn't it? It says, <clears throat> the soul that sins will die. So spiritual death comes about in our lives when we, um, when we, uh, when we sin. Sin brings forth spiritual death. Um, James talks about this in the New Testament and he says that sin is really like a seed that it germinates and it grows and it produces death in our lives. First of all, that death is a spiritual death. Um, it kind of separates us from the love of God. So we're, it's as though people are walking around like the living dead, like one of those movies, you know, like spiritual zombies almost. So they've, they've got a body but they're walking around and they're dead. They're cut off from, from, from Jesus, from the abundant life that he gives. But the end result of being cut off for all of your life from the abundant life of God is that it actually results in, in, in physical death as well. And the Bible's really quite graphic about that. I don't want to talk about that glibly, but the Bible is very graphic. It says um, that um, in Revelation 21 and verse 8, it says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderous, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now you might think that's heavy. 
<clears throat> it doesn't sound very loving, does it? <laughs> but do you know what Jesus says? Jesus said, I tell you, unless you repent, you too will perish. And do you know what the Apostle Paul says? He says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So there is that aspect to our message. It's not all about that. We know that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And I really want to talk about that at length. But also there is a terror. There is a fear. There is consequences to rejecting God. Do you know, as, a, as a GP, you're going to think I'm really um, horrible now. But um, <clears throat> I had a patient with uh, chest pain the other, other day. And, and I do quite, sometimes I do threaten my patients when they come to me. Um, so um, he, he came to me and he was clutching his chest and he was, he was sweating and, he, and he was, I think he was Irish and he said, oh doctor, I don't want to go to hospital, I don't want to be any trouble to anybody. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> maybe it was Frankie. <laughs> I, I said, oh I don't want to be any trouble to anybody or something or whatever. And I said to him, I'm not normally, I'm not normally like this, I don't like being direct with people at all. Um, and I said to him, I said to him, I said, look, you've got chest pain. This may well be cardiac. It may be, you may, if you go home now, you may well have a massive heart attack and die. Okay? And, and at various times in my career, I've said things like that to people. So sometimes I've thought someone was smoking too much and they had a lung problem. And I've said to them, if you keep, this sounds really awful, I've said to them, if you keep smoking, you won't see your grandchildren, which is horrible. But occasionally, and people have told me, uh, and people have come back and they said, I'm pleased you said that. I'm not saying that to be vindictive. I'm not saying that because, you know, I hate people or something. But because, but because you know, we have to warn people. We have to warn people. Do you know what? It's a much worse thing. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing. It's a scary thing. It's much worse than, than having a heart attack. It's much worse than physical death. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And uh, just the next slide here is, it's hard to say that, isn't it? I think a lot of the time when we don't say things like that, what we're doing is we're showing that we actually love ourselves and we love what people think of us more than we do others. Um, you know, it says here on this slide here, um, God says to Ezekiel, and this is it's a difficult passage, but I think it's very convicting. God says, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you don't give him any warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. As messengers of God, I know we're not in the same position as Ezekiel, but Paul says the same thing. Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I haven't shunned to declare to you the whole gospel of God. If we don't warn people at some point of, of the judgment of their sin, we are failing in our duty. I know that there's grace. God's grace covers everything. Hallelujah. But God does call us to preach a full message that includes personal responsibility for sin and a warning of the consequences. Because if it's really real, if we really believe what we say we do, if we really believe what we say we do, then we have to love people this way. We have to. Otherwise, we're just being hypocrites. But, you know, I want to turn now to something a bit more positive, you know, to the other side of the story. You know, <clears throat> and this is a final point, really. And I want to talk about this a little bit more at length because I think that this is really good news. 
Demonstrating the love of God towards the lost, it means that we assure them of God's displeasure at their death and his ultimate desire to save all people. Because do you know what the Bible says? I mean, the, the love of God is the most profound mystery known to all of humanity. I mean, it's unquenchable, it's never-ending. But one of the things that's important about the love of God is it's universal. It's all-encompassing. There's no limit to God's love. You know, and God is not a God who ever delights in the destruction of the wicked. Never. Um, some slanderous, God gets all kinds of slanderous accusations, doesn't he? From people like Stephen, Stephen Fry who said, you know, God's the worst character in all, of, in all of history. Sometimes I worry about the caricatures that some Christians point of, of God as well, as though he kind of vindictively, sadistically enjoys, he just is a God who'll just throw people in hell, um, you know, without a second thought. But that is not the God we worship, and that is not the God of the Bible. I'm very clear about that. Um, twice in this passage, God states in unambiguous, clear terms that he does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Look at verse 23. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Notice those two little words, at all. At all, what does that mean to you? That there is no aspect of God's being, there's no fibre within him that takes any joy in the destruction of individuals. That is not God's character. And again, it reiterates it again in verse 32. It says, I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. So this idea, I just want to talk about this a little bit, about God's heart. What is God's heart? It's as we get God's heart for the lost that we're going to be transformed. So the, uh, the idea of God not gloating over the death of the wicked, but being instead deeply saddened by it, is in fact consistent with the entirety of how God reveals himself in the Bible. So I want to look at a few things. So first of all, and this is going to be quite brief, okay, but I just briefly want to talk about these things. I do think it's important. Um, God's heart towards rebellious Israel. <clears throat> so this is my first point. So time and time again, Israel, like we've talked about already, they trample God's laws, they reject God's laws, they, they throw his faithfulness back in his face. And time and time again, God sends some prophets and they preach repentance and restoration. Um, and, and so that's evidence in itself of God's desire to save, isn't it, of his, of his love. Look at what it says in Hosea. Do you remember the book of Hosea? It's a brilliant book, isn't it? This kind of wonderful picture of Goma and um, Hosea, uh, Goma the prostitute and, and, and their relationship and how that pictures. But look at what God says. Look at what God says. He says, how can I give you up Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. So we see something of the heart of God there. It's a deep, churning desire. It's almost as though God is pleading with his people, please return to me. I love you. I don't want this. I, I, want, I want a relationship with you. I love you. That's, that's God's heart towards Israel. But what about Jesus? Let's just think about Jesus briefly. I know I'm skipping through, but this is a bit of an overview. Look at Jesus' heart towards the lost. And I just want to pick out a few characteristics about how we see Jesus in his ministry dealing with the lost. First of all, he deals with them with compassion. He deals with them with compassion. 
It says, And Jesus, when he came out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus sees all these people aimlessly wandering about, um, no purpose, no direction, and he feels sorry for them. He feels sorry for them. His heart is stirred. Sometimes I feel like that on the streets. You know, I see people, you can't really judge people's heart just because they don't take your leaflet or something. I don't always take leaflets on the street. Um, <laughs> but you know, but sometimes you look at people and they're so busy, they're kind of, they, they're, they're with their shopping and, and, you know, and they're wandering about and they're pursuing all the cares of the world and they don't really seem interested you know, in the Lord particularly. Um, and you know, we can be tempted to be a bit like, oh, you know, why aren't you interested? You, know, you should be, do you know what I mean? But Jesus looks on them with compassion. He sees how lost they are. He sees how aimless they are. And his heart is moved with compassion. I wonder if we have that heart. Grief. Jesus, do you remember when he looks at Jerusalem um, and he mourns over Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your chicks, children, sorry, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So Jesus' heart, it's, it's, it's racked with anguish, isn't it? It is racked with anguish. He sees Jerusalem. He sees that they won't repent. His heart is racked with anguish. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God, the heart of Jesus. Hallelujah. Um, a willingness to heal. Do you remember the account when a leper comes to him and they're covered in discharging sores, they're covered in pus, and they're ostracized by their family and by their society. Isn't that how we are in our sin? But do you know what Jesus does? He wasn't revulsed. He reaches out his hands. And you know the man says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus immediately reaches out and he touches him. And he says, I am willing, be cleansed. I'm willing, be cleansed. I'm willing, be cleansed. And you know, finally, just thinking about Jesus, he has a desire to save rather than destroy. He has a desire to save rather than destroy. Do you remember the story when um, Jesus and his disciples, um, are, they're rejected by a Samaritan village? And uh, do you remember that, that James and John they were kind of impetuous people, weren't they? And they, they kind of said, oh, oh God, just, just smite them. Just, you know, call, call down some fire from heaven. Can't you just burn them up? Um, <laughs> sometimes I feel like that. but Well, not often, but I shouldn't admit to that, should I? But, <laughs> but do, you know what, um, do you know what Jesus, do you know what Jesus says? He says, Lord, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But Jesus turns and he rebukes them. He says, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. That's why Jesus came. Do you know what the other spirit is? Do you know what the spirit is that seeks to destroy? Do you know who's called the destroyer in the book of Revelation? Apollyon. It's also said Abaddon. It's the spirit of Satan. And he comes to destroy, and he delights in destruction. The Bible says the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy but I've come that they may have life and they may have it in abundance. That's the God we worship. Isn't that good? Hallelujah. I'm just, I think it's wonderful. You know, it's so good to be encouraged. Just be encouraged this morning. If you're a believer, just be encouraged in the love of God. Be encouraged that that's God's heart towards you. And if you don't know Jesus tonight, be encouraged that God wants to know you and God isn't delighting in your destruction. He, he longs to save you. And finally, I want to talk about the Apostle Paul. I love Paul. Paul was a faithful imitator of Jesus Christ, wasn't he? he, he, he his life was very, um, I'm very impressed by the life of Paul. And, and you know what one of the things he said was? He said, I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit 
that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen. I could wish myself accursed from Christ, my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. So hard to understand, but Paul almost there was effectively saying, I'd rather be lost from Christ than you were. I'd rather suffer all of the consequences that that entails, including eternal hell, because I want you to be saved so much. That's what Paul said. Now, of course, he wasn't saying, you know, Paul loved Jesus. You know, for him to live was Christ and die again. So, of course, he wanted to be with Christ. But but he had that depth of love, that depth of feeling. I wonder if we have that depth of feeling. Um, I've got to say, I don't always have that depth of feeling. We can be very cold-hearted. But we need to ask the Holy Spirit to come. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and change our hearts and give us that kind of love. And finally, just two verses I want to pick out from the epistles. Two verses I want to pick out from the epistles. And these are another witness to the love of God, the all-encompassing God of love, love of God. It says in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, it says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour. He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Clear, isn't it? Very clear. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any would perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we have this clear, it kind of reverberates, God's heart reverberates through the scriptures, doesn't it? Through Ezekiel, through the prophets, through Jesus, that's his heart. That's what God's heart reverberates. Now, I know that it's not that simple. Some people might come to me, particularly those of you who are more theologically astute than I am, and I might say, well, there are passages that kind of you could interpret, you know, that, that, that appear to, to not fit in with that. So one of them, for example, and I'm not going to labour on this, but one of them, for example, is, is Revelation 18.20, and there are others, and it says, rejoice over her, and this is speaking about when Babylon is destroyed, you know, the Antichrist system Babylon. Babylon's a picture of the Antichrist system. And when Babylon is destroyed, it says, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy angels and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. And there are scriptures like that in the Bible. But what is super clear is the Bible doesn't contradict himself. God isn't, we've, we've, we've made it clear that God does desire all men to be saved. But what God rejoices in as well, there is a reality that God rejoices never in the destruction of individuals, but in the vindication of justice and righteousness. So maybe one way you could think of it is a bit like a judge. And uh, he sentences a young guy who, who's been done for drug smuggling offences. And, you know, part of the judge is really happy because um, he realises that he's not going to keep smuggling drugs. You know, lots of lives aren't going to be destroyed. Um, justice is being done. The law is being upheld. But still, at the same time, the judge could be thinking, this is a waste of your life. I, I, I'm sad that you've done this, drug smuggler. <laughs> um, I'm sad that you've done this. Um, you're going to be languishing in prison for the next few few. So, so, so that sentence can be given out with a heavy heart and even with tears in his eyes. So God will judge. And there is a sense, to be fair, that God, does, uh, God is satisfied by justice being done. But do you know what I mean? It's the heart of God. It's the heart of God. It's what his heart is. It's what his heart is. So I'm just going to close briefly um, really just just with a couple of thoughts, really, a couple of implications from this. Um, The first one is that we should aim to preach a full-bodied gospel message that includes sin as our root problem, and um, it it, um, identifies the judgment to come. And the second thing is that we need to aim to convey this message in the spirit of Christ, not the spirit of James and John. Not that spirit that seeks to destroy, but in that spirit um, that seeks to... um, to bring all men to repentance.